Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing. Broadcasting from Huntington Beach, California, and from New York City, coast to coast, a big L.A. welcome from the Big Apple and from L.A. to all our listeners out there in Radio Land. I am Dave Nassani, Dave the Caregiver's Caregiver on the Caregiver Dave Radio Show, coming to you live from the syndicated all-positive talk radio network, HealthyLife.net, broadcasting in all 50 states and 135 countries with my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg of the Caregiverspace.org who's in Manhattan. Hello, Adrian. How are you? Hello. Where'd Good. Bernie go? There he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we lost Bernie, and we don't want to lose him again. We have an exciting <laughs> show again. planned for you today. Dr. Bernie Siegel, a man who is famous in his own right. Dr. Siegel was born in Brooklyn, New York, just like me. I was born in Bay Ridge, Prospect Park. I don't know where he was born, but he'll tell us. He attended Colgate University, Cornell University Medical College. He holds membership in two scholastic honor societies, Phi Beta Kappa and Alpha Omega Alpha, and graduated with honors. His surgical training took place at Yale New Haven Hospital, West Haven Veteran Hospital, and the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. He retired from practice as an assistant clinical professor of surgery at Yale General and Pediatric Surgery in 1989 to speak to patients and their caregivers. In 78, he originated Exceptional <clears throat> Cancer Patients, a specific form of individual and group therapy utilizing patients' drawings, dreams, images, and feelings. ECAP is based on a carefrontation, a safe, loving, therapeutic confrontation which facilitates personal lifestyle changes, personal empowerment and healing, and the individual's life. That's a change, isn't it? The physical, spiritual, and psychological benefits which followed led to his desire to make everyone aware of his or her healing potential. He realized exceptional behavior is what we're all capable of. And I can go on and on and on about that. You can. That. I can because it's right <laughs> here in front of me. He's but here. we would take up the whole show just telling everybody how yep. great he is. So, Bernie, welcome to the show. Thank you. My mother would like it if you just go on and on. <laughs> Is your mother still with us? <laughs> no, but many articles in magazines are written about the controversial Dr. Siegel and interviews. And my mother would always say, oh, I love that article about you. I'd say, Mom, did you really read it? But she's loving me. It doesn't matter what people said. Yeah. yeah. Well... That's a great first question, uh, Bernie. Um, actually, my first question that I ask people who come on the show, and then I'll ask you the, the great first question, is um, what, why was Bernie Siegel put on this earth? What oh, destiny is, is, is he it's, it's have on his life? Well, it's to share the truth about life. I just put out another book called No Endings, Only Beginnings. And mm. let me just list some of the things I've been through. All right. I had a near-death experience at age four, choking on a toy. Wow. I had a past life experience when somebody said over the telephone, why are you living this life? 
I went into a trance, saw myself killing with the sword, realized that was I was a surgeon today for, to make up for that. My wife oh. was in my past life, and it was no coincidence that she and I met working as counselors at a camp. I was just talking to her about the camp, and she said, are you asking me out on a date? So I immediately <laughs> said yes, because she was so pretty. I thought she'd never go out with me. And we end up getting married. Um, I was born to a mother who was told not to have any children because she was so sick with hypothyroidism, they thought mm. she wouldn't survive the pregnancy. And she wasn't strong enough to deliver me. So to quote my mother, they didn't hand me a child when they pulled you out because she couldn't <laughs> survive a cesarean section. They handed me a purple melon. Um, <laughs> If it wasn't for my grandmother, I wouldn't be alive today. Because when they were hiding me from everybody, and as an adult, I learned this. Because if you look at my family album, all you see are covered carriages. Never see mm. me. I figured, well, I'm sleeping, so they're not going to wake me up. You know, take my picture. <laughs> my mother said that when I said to her, if I'm an infant and nobody's touching me and you're hiding me, how the hell did I survive? Because your brain doesn't develop, you don't gain weight, your immune system doesn't function. She said, oh, my mother took you, poured oil all over you, and pushed everything back where it belonged four or five times a day. So <laughs> I became the most loved infant on the planet. And I'll tell you again that I know about body memories 50 years later with a shaved head. I was massaged for the first time by a woman. I'd had many massages by this guy we knew. But when we went over, he said, I'm so busy, can my wife do one of you? So my wife and I went for massage. The woman massaged me. When she started doing my head, I knew I went back to being an infant. All the body mm. memories that was. And it was a total bliss. But when I opened my eyes, the room was filled with 20 or 25 people. I said, I'm getting a massage. What the hell are you all doing here? My <laughs> husband said, we thought you had a heart attack or a stroke. We couldn't communicate with you. You were gone. I said, What age yes. was that? What age? Infant. I was in my 50s. Wow. I said, I became an infant then, and I couldn't, I couldn't communicate with you. You know, I'm perfectly happy, and they're scared to death over what happened to me. And let me also add, why did I shave my head in the <laughs> 1970s? Our kids had their hair down to their shoulders. We have five right. Kids. When I said, I'm going to have my head shaved, we'll kill the barber if he does it for you. <laughs> and I told the barber, I'll go on vacation. Nobody will know, which was a lie. So on Friday night, he shaved my head. And, um, you know, the kids knew they had a crazy father. What are they going to do with him? But when you have a shaved head in the 1970s, everybody knew you were screwed up. So they all <laughs> talked about their troubles in the hospital and everywhere. When did I learn why I really did it? Because I had to do it. That's the only way I could describe it to you. I'm reading Carl Jung, and it said, when monks shave their head, it's symbolic of uncovering their spirituality. When I read that, it was like, oh, my God, I didn't need to shave my head. I needed to uncover my spirituality and because go. it was painful to be a surgeon and try to figure out why God made a world where people go through all this suffering. 
and I did a lot of children's surgery. And you really wonder, why would God have children born with all these defects? You know, mechanical, mm -hmm. intestinal obstructions, yep. uh, all sorts of things that you have to operate on them as newborns to repair. And um, so that was a struggle, finding my faith. I questioned Abraham and Jesus, too. I mean, what would you say if God came to you and said, I want you to sacrifice one of your kids? Would you say, okay? <laughs> See, when I read that... Abraham before, did. <laughs> yeah, because he had faith in his Lord. <laughs> I would have said, leave the kid alone or take me. You know? Yeah. And then I would have suffered for not having faith. Mm. But when you have faith, if you notice... Isaac doesn't end up dead. And if you notice the language in the Bible, Abraham says to his co-workers, you know, the guys who were helping him, he said, we're going to go off, but we'll be back in a little while. Now, if you're mm -hmm. going to end up killing your kid, why don't you say, I'll be back in a little while? But he said, we'll be back. Right. And I think he knew that if he had faith in his Lord, he wouldn't be asked to do things like that. Yeah. And, I have and, to he add, knew, my, and he knew that Jesus. God could even bring him back from the dead if necessary. Yes. See, if I were Jesus, too, I always planned to jump off the cross and impress everybody. <laughs> See? So there's no I can do, so pay attention. You know? Well, then you couldn't so, save us if you did that. But it's doing the greater good. And let me, let me finish with this so you'll understand, because I mentioned my past life, killing. I was asked... I was seeing a therapist, James Hillman, because it was so traumatic. I killed in the past life the woman who is my life today. My Lord said, go kill the neighbor's daughter. He's driving me crazy. I said, why don't I kill him? No, I want you to kill her. I said, what if I don't? I'll kill you. I'm going. And I killed her. And when I came back to show him her head, he said, I didn't do it. You did it. If you'd had faith in me, I wouldn't have asked you to do that. And Hillman said to me, do you hear what you're saying? What? My Lord, my Lord. I said, yes, the Lord of the castle is asking me. He said, no, Bernie, it's your Lord. And boy, that hit home for me because of how I always questioned Abraham and Jesus. He said, go home and relive it. So I went home. I relived it. Abraham... I mean, God said to me, um, I want you to kill the neighbor's daughter. I said, fine, I'm going. No, stop. He said, I was just testing your faith and know I could trust you. Bring them here so we can resolve this problem. And wow, what a difference, you know, mm -hmm. that I learned from that. Because I thought using the word, my Lord, was just, you know, the head of the castle the guy running shows. And I'd say we all need to define who our Lord is and who we're saying yes to. And by that, I mean, your Lord could be money. You know what I mean? It could be power. It can be all kinds of things. Uh, and you have to look at who are you living for and why. And uh, if you find the right Lord and the true Lord, then your life becomes significant and meaningful. And I try to live Higher. that way. The way I put it is, I try to live the sermon. And let me add one more sentence, because as I was out speaking, my wife and children, my wife actually participated in the presentations, but they would be sitting in the audience. 
And I never forget people coming up to me saying, we can trust you in what you say. I said, what are you talking about? They said, your wife and children are sitting there in the front row. So <laughs> you must be speaking the truth or you wouldn't have them sitting there. And how often do you see that with all our, you know, politicians and uh, millionaires and others, uh, what they're saying about life and politicians are, are uh, their audience sitting there nodding their heads yes or just, you know, not there at all. So you mentioned before that you're uh, controversial. So explain that. Yeah. Why are well, you so controversial? When I started doing this mind-body stuff, there, there was no science behind it. You see, uh, we didn't study genes uh, and body chemistry and all kinds of things. So when I say to people, what's going on in your life? Doctors would say to me, why are you blaming your patients? I said, I'm not blaming them. I'm trying to get them to look at why they may have become ill now. Okay? Monday morning, as an example, we have more heart attack, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. You know, you can't blame Monday. It's what people are thinking. But there was no science behind that. Um, because, you know, people just, as I say, I was controversial, talking about feelings and emotions. And saying that the people who got well when they weren't supposed to, it wasn't a spontaneous remission, which is what doctors called it. Mm. And Solzhenitsyn, the author, called it in his book, Cancer War, self-induced healing. See? So I'm calling it self-induced, and they're saying, oh, come here, crazy, there's no proof. And so they loved, you know, writing articles, and I was on every famous talk show with people arguing with me. Um, I, I what year was Phil this? I had, to fill, I had to really respect Phil Donahue because the Oprah would invite me. I have to say, she agreed <laughs> with what I was saying, but she'd always have four or five doctors there to tell me I was an idiot and didn't know what I was talking about. And I remember one of them said, well, there's a, you said this in the book. I said, I never said that. He's quoting me. Oprah opens my book, Love, Medicine, Miracles, and it isn't there. See, it's how they were all interpreting what I was doing. Mm. And it was totally misinterpreted. And it you became mean there was science. fake news? Fake news back in those days? <laughs> well, but let me tell you, see, what Phil did, I came in expecting to go up on the stage. He said, no, Bernie, you sit in the audience. I want the three women on the stage who had cancer. And I thought, oh boy, he's read my book and he knows what I'm talking about. They're the teachers. And, and again, see, one of the incidents, one of the women who went out to Chicago for the show met an old boyfriend, stayed, got married, and didn't die of the cancer she was told she was going to die of. And to me, again, that's part of what I was sharing. It's no coincidence. Sure. Her life has changed. I mean, I can tell you, some stories will make you smile. You know, they told me I have two months to live, and I don't make up any of these. I'm going out to Colorado to die in the mountains. It's beautiful. A year later, I called up to tell the family, what's wrong with you? I told you I would come to the funeral. He answered the phone, and he said, it was so beautiful here, I forgot to die. <laughs> now, and that's not a coincidence, because as we study, again, the genes get messages. The identical twins don't get the same disease the same month of the year. Right. You can have one 
woman get breast cancer and her sister doesn't. And they have the same genes. So again, it's something that needs to, you know, turn on the genes. And books have been written about that. Uh, and as those began to get, you know, written, then I wasn't so crazy anymore. And uh, I could go out and talk and people, the people listened. And yeah. I began to realize there was a so part of it. What year, what year were so you crazy? <laughs> and what year did you all of a sudden not be crazy? We started the groups, I think, in 1978. And I'll tell you, again, the sad part. I sent a hundred letters to people with cancer. They basically, because one of my patients, I went to a workshop by Carl Diamondton, who wrote Getting Well Again. He was empowering cancer patients with imagery. And my patients were there. I was the only doctor in a room of 150 people. See, that's the craziness of medicine. So my patients are sitting around me, and what changed my life was this simple statement. You're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. When she said that, I thought, wow, I don't have to feel helpless as a physician. I can help people live even if I can't cure a disease. So I sent a hundred letters out saying, you want to live a long, a better life, come to a meeting. I said to my secretary, you forgot to say it's only for the people who get the letter. Now, what am I going to do with all these people? Because I expected <laughs> several hundred people to show up. Twelve women appeared. And I realized I don't know my patients. I'm trying to help them live and they don't show up. Why? I don't have time to read a book. I'm, I, I can't draw a right. picture. I, I could do it wrong. I mean, they're so afraid of failing. And that's why my wife came up with the term exceptional cancer patients. She said, those are exceptional women. And I said, all right, that's what we'll call it. And then a lot of people said, well, I'm not exceptional, so I can't come to your group. But it's mm -hmm. how they were all brought up, how much that. Yeah, let me give you a statistic again. And you can answer in your head, too. Did your parents love you? Harvard students were asked that question. Those who said no while at Harvard, by the time they were middle-aged, they were all looked up. 98% had suffered a major illness. Hmm. Those who said yes, 24% had suffered a major illness. So you have to say, why does that make a difference? It's how you take care of yourself, how you feel about yourself. Yeah. And, and I can also tell you, again, as I say, I don't make these things up. A woman who had polio as a child was angry that her body was deformed. Mm -hmm. And then she developed a, a neuro, neurological disease, which added more to her troubles. And she said, I don't want to die hating my body. So I lay down naked in front of a full-length mirror and started loving my body inch by inch. And to make a long story short, by the time she was done loving herself, her neurological disease disappeared and she didn't die of it. Mm. And those are the things that I began to learn over and over again. Everybody who didn't die when they were supposed to had a story to tell you. I got a dog, I put in a backyard wildlife mm -hmm. habitat, I bought a house on the ocean down in Florida. Um, oh, I didn't. You see, in a poem, I always say read fiction if you want to know the truth. 
You'd say, what? <laughs> the the <laughs> authors observe the world and write about it with their own characters. So it's mm -hmm. a, and, and, and that's the part. So there's a poem called Miss G by um, W.H. Auden. In it, he says, when he comes home to his wife, that I examined Miss G today, that lonely lady, and she has cancer. And he goes on to say, childless women get it, and men when they retire. It's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned it at a medical meeting at Yale, and I heard yelled out of the audience, just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. <laughs> now, why would a poet write that if he didn't observe it in life? Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I've seen that with patients. And one landscaper I had retired and developed cancer. And when I told him he needed more treatment after I operated on him, he had stomach cancer. I said, I couldn't remove it all. You need more treatment. No, it's springtime. Gonna go home and make the world beautiful. So <laughs> when I die, I leave a beautiful world. Six mm. years later, the nurse handed me his chart. I said, he's dead. We must have two patients with the same name. She said, Bernie, open the door. I opened the door and there sat John. I have a hernia from lifting boulders in my landscape business. <laughs> he lived to 91 and became my uh, therapist. Because uh -oh. if I walked in the woods with him, it became a beautiful place to walk. He mm -hmm. saw things that I didn't see. It could be colors, plants, and, and it was just joyful to walk with him. Uh, and matter of fact, our latest book, the one when you realize how perfect everything is, with our grandson, um, Charlie, and myself, he, Charlie's into photography. And so the book has loads of photographs of nature, as well as all our poetry. And Hold that thought, Bernie, because uh, right. I, I need to take a break, and I want to talk about Charlie, because I can tell he loves okay. you very, very much, because he was <laughs> constantly, my grandpa's, you know, uh, make sure you send him the link, because uh, he wanted, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, so you got a great <laughs> grandson there who loves you. So hold on. We'll be right back. Right. Don't go away. And we're back with Dr. Bernie Siegel. Yes, the great and marvelous Bernie Siegel. <laughs> And my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg. I'm Dave Nassani on the Caregiver Dave Show. And uh, tell us about uh, your grandson and the book that uh, I interrupted you about. Uh, well, what, what is interesting is I wrote another book that just came out, No, Begin no Endings, Only Beginnings. Mm -hmm. And there's spirituality in my experience with life. And I was talking to Charlie about it, and I, it was like he was an old man who had a life experience that it took me 60 years to have. He's doing it in 20 years. That's amazing. Yeah, he's written poems. So the book is filled with our poetry. And I wrote the poems, you know, like when I was 20 or 30 years older than he was, out of the pain that I was having as a surgeon. But he wrote them out of this spiritual nature that's in him. So... Um, like we both wrote a poem called Trees, you know, and other things. I mean, it's just amazing. And so we got together and put this together and turned it into a book. And I may add on the cover is one bird 
it's a, from a photograph he took flying through the air. And I said, since it's two of us, uh, I don't know if you can see that. Since there's two of yeah. us, why yes. don't you have two birds? He said, no, that's the reader finding their way and that we're helping them. And I love that. And he has those mm. kinds of insights, you know. Um, and so talking to him, I got him to help me with the other book. And then this book turned out. Um, and I love it, too. And I so in other words, life has been perfectly imperfect. That's what I always say. I was going to repeat that. Yeah, that's my impression of life. And from talking to God, when I said to God, why would you make a world like this? God said, Bernie, a perfect <laughs> world, not creation. It's a magic trick. And I can tell you from my visits to heaven where I'm a consultant. Um, <laughs> that, you know, everybody's loving everybody up there. And it drives you crazy. Because I walk there now because I realize if you're driving and you come to a corner, everybody says, I love you. You go first. They, wow. And then they yell, no, I love you. You go first. And nobody <laughs> goes anywhere because they're all loving each other. So I just get out of the car and walk. Because um, <laughs> you don't need lights in heaven. Everybody's good to everybody else. But I think when people understand why is the statement why we don't have a perfect world it's to bring meaning into it so when somebody does a favor for you it really means something you know a mother teresa a helen keller um and many others uh, these are people who become my teachers you know with all their troubles and other issues but they see the world in a different way mm. and i think that we're all here to contribute, you know, to, to that's why I keep saying to live the sermon yeah. and to be honest with yourself. So, what have you learned, Bernie, from your wife's uh, life and her oh, death? Yeah, let me tell five you, children. we don't die. We don't die as for real. This past weekend was his Mother's Day. The numbers have quantity and meaning. I learned that from Jung. So people draw, well, let me say, uh, tell you this reporter. She came to see me. She thought I was a nutcase. I said, draw a picture for me. She drew a picture. She had a big head, which told me she was intellectual, thought I was crazy with all my feelings. But behind her on the wall in the picture is a clock with one hand pointed at 12. So I thought, I'm going to knock her on the head. I said, what happened when you were 12 years old? I don't like deadlines. I said, there's only one hand on the clock. And then she fell apart. She'd been sexually abused as a 12-year-old. Yeah. When I drew a picture, what got me started in this for Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who became my therapist, um, mm -hmm. she said, why is 11 important? I said, why do you ask me that for? You drew 11 trees. I said, yeah, I've been doing this work with cancer patients 11 months. I can also tell you the day we were married was the 11th. But you see, the pain I had when Elizabeth asked me that wasn't about, oh, I got married on the 11th. No, it was 11 months of helping cancer patients. But anyway, this past weekend was 9, 10, 11. My wife was born on 9, 9. We were married on the 11th. 10th is Mother's Day. On the 9th, I threw a few things in the washing machine and dried them 
took them out of the, and these were not things, clothing with, that would have money in them at all. I took them out and lying in the dish and the clothes dryer were a dime and a penny down inside on the metal, you know, piece. That's, I love that's it. my wife. Yeah, saying, honey, I'm here. I love you. Wow. And on, on Monday, <laughs> it was even more extreme. I get out of bed in the morning. It's the same, you know, like queen-size bed that my wife and I slept in. And I go around to the other side to pull all the covers back and tighten it up again. I put my hands on the blankets and, and the sheet and pulled it towards me, and it pulled out of my hands, literally, mm. and flew, to, you know, folded backwards to the other side of the bed. And what's lying on the sheet on the mattress? A dime and a penny. Now, there is absolutely no way you can explain that. I don't go to sleep with my pants on, you know what I mean? And <laughs> things would fall out. This was on the sheet that covers the mattress. Yeah. So we have found that it's either six or seven times I have found a dime and a penny mm. in very weird places, including a bird bath in the woods filled with leaves and dirty water that I heard a voice say, clean the bird bath one morning. So I dumped it out and there was a dime and a penny in it. And years ago, when my mother died, we started finding pennies. It was really mystical. But one of the grandchildren solved the problem. They said, and this is a little pipsqueak standing in the yard. Mm. They're pennies from heaven. Uh. So that what it meant to all of us, they're pennies from heaven. <clears throat> and I have found innumerable pennies after my wife died. Also, I've had experiences, if you want to hear some of these, that I get into bed, I hear the sound that you'd make when you blew out a candle, and I feel a breeze on my face. I knew my wife was kissing me goodnight. There is no explanation for a breeze like that. And, yeah, and one night I even heard her voice. And I sat up in bed and said, do you need any help? And I thought, you stupid, your wife is dead. But I could hear her making sounds. You know, as if you were turning in bed going, uh, mm you know, fixing yourself. So I know she's around me and I accept that. And I have her photographs everywhere uh, mm. to, so that her presence is there for me. Uh, oh, hold on, we'll be right back, I, don't go away. And we're back with Dr. Bernie Siegel. Yeah, it's, oh, well, but let me tell you the effect it had. No coincidence. What organ in your body is related to love? Heart. Your heart. Eight months after my wife dies, my heart went crazy. Mm. By that I mean what's called auricular fibrillation. It's just mm -hmm. beating with no rhythm. Um, oh, but then the mystery of it. I head for the emergency room. You walk into the emergency room and you hear them announce, put him in room nine. <laughs> I thought, oh, my wife's watching for me. We don't have a room upstairs for you in the hospital. Next morning, we got a room. What's the room number? Eight one. <laughs> you know, and eight is a new beginning. Then I look at the wristband they put on me. You have a personal identification and you have a case right. number. 
my personal number is there's one eight, then there's two nines, two sixes, and two threes. Now, who figured that out? You know, you can add it all up to nines. And the case number also did the same thing, except one day. I went to the doctor's office, and I keep telling them, watch, everything will add up to nine. Then I looked, and I said, oh, my, that doesn't add up to nine. Then I realized it added up to 7-Eleven, our uh. anniversary. Uh, I mean, again, I can't explain them, but I I have saved. Oh, I, they're somewhere near me here in the room. But uh, I saved all those wristbands. So if anybody ever says, that's crazy, no, here right. they are. Look at them. Yeah. And so I think my mind is open to the mystical nature of life. And I mean it when I say we don't die, no endings, just beginnings. Because as the four-year-old, I had a near-death experience choking on a toy. I realized the body dies. Because when I started telling people what happened to me, I didn't know as a four-year-old that this wasn't something everybody knew about. Um, I thought it was a wonderful experience, and I truly was upset that I didn't die because it was so interesting and, mm. and beautiful. I was mad at God. I, I screamed, who did that? When, again, I have an angel. So he did a Heimlich maneuver. All the toy pieces came out, and I breathed again. Back in I go. But most of the time when I talked about it, I always talked about the kid on the bed who was dying. And I thought, why don't you say yourself? And I realized, because I'm not that body. I'm not the kid on the bed. I'm this spirit consciousness that's out of the body. And that's what people will all understand someday. And one more mystical thing. Then if I'm getting too crazy, you can tell me to talk about <laughs> something else. But I had a patient who came in one day and said, I've learned you're not a normal doctor. So <laughs> I, I'm a mystic and I brought a message for you. And she gave me a message from a patient with his name who had just recently died. I knew who she was talking about. And when I called the patient's wife, she shrieked. I said, I didn't call to mm. upset you. She said, you're not upsetting me. That's what Frank said every time he left your meeting. I can't buy the package. And again, how does I mystic know that? But when my wife died on a Friday, quietly at home, I was shocked when I went to wake her up in the morning because I didn't think, I didn't know she was dead. I mean, she looked fine just lying there. Um, on Sunday morning, I get a call from Monica, my friend, and I was waiting to see if she would call, if this was real. You know, with all her messages that she had given me. And she said, Bernie, I had a lovely talk with a woman who was an opera singer. And she told me, Bobby's fine. She's back together with the family and everything's okay. And what do you think my wife's mother was? An opera singer. Yeah. Now, how the hell could Monica know that? You know what I mean? So I'm a believer in all this and mm -hmm. getting messages and communicating. But the key is, I learned from an animal communicator, my friend Amelia Kincaid, said, Bernie, if you're screaming and yelling because your dog disappeared or your cat disappeared, you're never going to connect with them. You have to quiet your mind. Be quiet. And that's yeah. something I would tell everybody. It's the symbol of the still pond. The 
Joseph Campbell talked about a tiger who grew up with goats when his mother died giving birth to him. Another mm. tiger comes to, to catch, you know, a goat and have it for dinner and sees this tiger and says, what the hell are you doing here? And the, the tiger goes, eh. He says, I'm a goat. He says, no, you're not a goat. Come with me. He takes him to a still pond. See, you're a tiger. You're not a goat. And the ugly duckling. You're a swan. You're not an ugly duckling. When you quiet your mind, then you see. And that's when you get in the animal's mind. So if you ever want to have a program on talking to animals, I can do it for you. Because, <laughs> you know, I thought Amelia was nuts when she said she talked to animals. Because I met her at an ASPCA, uh, you know, rescue uh, meeting for animals. But she said I talked to animals. And once I started doing what she told me to do, oh boy, animals I adopted would tell me, you know, what their lives were like and, and a whole host of things that uh, just broke my heart. You know, really? when, when you've got an animal that's totally fearful, in other words, I'm having dinner, I want to give a dog a treat, I say, come here, and he backs up. Mm. I mean, what the hell's wrong with you? I pick up a broom and he would cringe. And I realized that when I said to him, why are you like this? He said, I belong to a couple. The wife was lovely, husband's an alcoholic. When I... When he's supposed to take me for a walk, he goes to a bar and he drinks and then he leaves me locked in the car and he abuses me. The beautiful part, I said, I love you. I'd never do anything like that. And the reason I adopted him, his name was Buddy, and I had written a little book called Buddy's Candle. And when, the, when I walked in the shelter, they said, his name is Buddy. He's been here 15 minutes. I said, I'll take him home. But <laughs> what I learned was a few weeks later, I accidentally opened the door on our minivan, you know, hitting the button when I put it in my pocket. Mm -hmm. And I thought, when I came out of shopping, well, he's gone. He was sitting in an open car waiting for me. Ugh. And he felt my love, and his whole life was different. And my other dog, I, I laughed so much, because he wasn't in the car. And I realized, yeah, he's in stop and shop looking for me, and he was. But <laughs> <laughs> I got into his head. And I went in to stop and shop, and the security guard said, you looking for a dog? I said, yeah. He said, I got him. I'm giving him treats. Here he is. Um, but that's, you know, to me, all these examples confirm the truth about consciousness, you know, that it's not local. It survives. And uh, so I, I, I have to share these things. And I say that because I just feel people need to know the truth about life. You know, and, and what goes on? Yes, there's grief, just like my heart um, was grieving the loss of my wife. But of course, we're still there and we'll be together again. Yeah, it isn't the first life my wife and have I have had. And I really felt because of why I was supposed to kill her was these two guys were fighting over land. And that when my wife and I got married, we solved the problem. <laughs> now we're one family and there's nothing to fight over anymore <laughs> I, I hate to interrupt uh, but we need to take another break so we will be right back don't go away alright and we're back with the marvelous Dr. Bernie Siegel and my co-host Adrian Gruber. I'm Dave Nassani we're on the Caregiver Dave radio show here on the healthylife.net 
All Positive Talk Radio. And uh, you should like that, All Positive Talk Radio. Um, Mm -hmm. How can I have my dog talk to me? I mean, I suspect what's going on in his life. You you are the problem. As I said, you have to quiet your mind, Mm -hmm. like the still pond. And then you can give your dog a message. I mean, what I found was most helpful when one of our cats is always climbing fences and going off in the woods. And I'd send her a message at night. I'm worried about you. There are predators out there. You might not survive. Come on. You'll be a lot more comfortable in the bedroom with us. Come on home. <laughs> and I'd open the kitchen door and she'd be staying there. I mean, what? it really was, you know, amazing to me to see those things working. So, again, it's talking to them. Or even if they want to go for a walk, I can stand there and say, I'm going out for a walk. Do you want to come? I can say it in my head. And if the dog wants mm-hmm. to, they jump up and run right over. And if yeah. not, they just give you that look. No, I don't feel like walking. It's now. all right. <laughs> yeah. but, what does but, it mean I, when my dog, who obviously is very insecure, he's a rescue animal, he's probably been abused, he won't look me in the eye. I mean, I have to literally force his face to look at me, and he well, he just turns away. Let him away. know What's... you love him. I mean, well, it. It, talk in your head. You don't have. You don't verbalize it. You stay talk in, in your, your head. head. I want you to know I love you. I brought you home because I love you, and I want mm-hmm. you to have a wonderful life. And I never will abuse you. I love you, mm-hmm. and keep saying that to him. And it'll get through to him. I mean, sure, your actions should be the same. You take him for a walk, you give him a, a treat. But I mean, yeah. you don't have to spoil him. You, you know, you pet his fur, um, yeah. all those things. Yeah, that he's a he's a family member, and that's yeah. something you can say to him. You're a family member. Did you give him a special name? A special name? Yeah, What's his name. Jackson. I that was what he was saying, or you mean you call him Jackson? Yeah, we gave him that name. All right, good. Yeah, I mean, uh, the dog I have now, I named him after a poem I read called Rags. And again, see, this is what the animals are like. Um, I read this poem in a book. It's on the Internet. Go look it up. But this, the punchline is, a soldier has many lives saved on the front line by this dog. So when he's discharged, he wants to take the dog home and he can't mm-hmm. find it. He gets back to medical school. And when I saw that line in the poem, it hit home. He gets back to medical school, walks into the lab, and who's cut open on the table? Rags. He walks over to him and the poem ends with, he licks my hand and dies. Mm-hmm. And if there's no place in heaven for fealty like that, I'll take my place in hell. And when I read oh. that, oh boy, did that touch my heart. See, yeah. My and I'm always saying to people, if you don't know how to behave, ask yourself, WWLD, what would Lassie do? You know? <laughs> then do it. Because they, I don't know if you remember Ann Landis' poem, that she had in her column. 
if you can start the day without caffeine, get going without pep pills, resist boring and complaining people with your troubles, not treat a rich friend better than a poor friend, face the world without lies and deceit, conquer tension without medical help, relax without liquor, sleep without the aid of drugs, and say honestly that deep in your heart you have no prejudice against race, religion, nationality, <clears throat> then my friends, you're almost as good as your dog. <laughs> I would often recite that to people and they would think that's, you know, he's teaching us how to survive. But then when you get to the end and say you're almost as good as your dog, they burst out laughing. But it ain't funny. It's very true. It's very it true. It is true. And that's why dogs are better friends than people because they don't judge. They accept you just the way you are. Oh, you can you can beat them one day and they'll forgive you. And, you know, one of my books is Love, Animals, and Miracles because I had people send in stories about animals, how they have saved lives, you know, taught us beautiful things. Our house was a zoo. I mean, I described that in the book. We have five children. Everybody loved animals, so I put up fences, broke all the zoning laws. We had ducks, geese, goats, mm. rabbits, skunks, you know, birds, cats and dogs. And But nobody reported us, because I found that was interesting when I learned you're not allowed to have all these creatures on your property. Um, but nobody ever called the police. Mm -hmm. And even when I would call the police to say, there's an animal called the kinkajou. Imagine calling the police department and saying, my kinkajou disappeared. So if anybody <laughs> called me, you know, there'd be dead silence. What? <laughs> but these were, I mean, vets gave us animals that people didn't want after they mm -hmm. got them. But again, the relationship, all the eggs were hatched in the house. So when our kids would go to school, the ducks and geese tried to get on the bus with them. Uh. They would go down the driveway and try to jump up on the bus. And the driver, you know, he didn't get mad at me because it touched his heart too. But he'd shut the door before they did. And mm -hmm. when I would release some of them on a lake that my parents lived on, uh, you know, when the yard got so filled with ducks and geese, I couldn't keep them anymore. <laughs> my mother called the first time I let some go there. Why are the ducks and geese coming out of the lake every time a school bus shows up? Our neighbors want to know. I said, Ma, they're looking for our kids, and it's breaking my heart that they're missing our children. But you, you become family. It's amazing. And everybody had a name. Oh, and, and how smart they are. I mean, a rabbit. Um, I would sit on the sofa reading a book. The rabbit would jump up on the sofa, grab the book in her teeth, and throw it on the floor. And I knew she was saying, the hell with the book. Rub my stomach, you know, pet me. <laughs> right. It, it, it's just amazing how, again, they are so well-trained, thinking, and accept each other. I've got to tell you this story. Um, about 10 days after I, we rescued the rabbit, um, I didn't shut all the sliders and the pet doors, but I thought, because I left the house, I thought, ah, oh, but they've all been together 10 days. But when I got home, I realized I made a mistake because one of the dogs grabbed the rabbit and injured her. You know, he grabbed her like a, I'm sure, a stuffed toy and shook her. Mm -hmm. She had wounds around her head and, you know, took her to the vet and was worked on. And then she's home again. <clears throat> and... 
I'd go out every afternoon when I was going to lock up, call her name. Her name was Smudge because she's the black uh, rabbit. And one night, as a matter of fact, because I could never find her, I said to her, why don't you let me pick you up and take you in? Where are you? And she sent me a message. She said, you don't treat the cats this way. I said, the cats can take care of themselves, but I'm worried about a predator jumping the fence and you. And then she would let me pick her up. But this evening I went out and I yelled and yelled and walked and I couldn't find her. Then I noticed a dog who was called Furphy because he was enormous fur lying there. And I went over to pet him. And who was underneath him? The rabbit. (laughs) He had become her best friend, hiding her from me so she didn't have to go in at night. And that's what I felt animals teach me. What a sense of forgiveness. He threatened her life. And she is now best of friends with him. Best friend. Wow. You know, the true forgiveness. <clears throat> yeah. And you know, it's hard, I, I hard to believe, know. but uh, we've run out of time. <laughs> and there was <laughs> so much more we wanted to talk about. But, well, um, I'll come back. You uh, will. Good. <laughs> and so let's, uh, how will people, uh, are you promoting, I assume you're promoting your new book. Uh, yeah. I think you are. So tell us about how we can get it and uh, how we get a hold of you. When you realize how perfect everything is, Bernie and Charlie Siegel, conversation about life between grandfather and grandson. Through Amazon and the bookstores, um, it's available there now. Yeah. And the other book is uh, No Endings, Only Beginnings. That should be available there, too. I haven't done Mm -hmm. a lot of publicity for it. But um, uh, the two really... You know, it's because of Charlie, the two things happen together because, well, he's helping me talk about spirituality and share poetry. Mm. The other book just blossomed out of that. And I'll tell you, there's one more that will come out called Three Men in Six Lives. It's Mm. about past life experiences. And again, I just want to wake people up to all these things. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to prove anything or, or really, in a sense, sell anything. I want them to know these things really happen. And uh, you, you are know, a different doctor, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you again it, for coming I, on I, the show. One more, one more thing. See, when Quick I one. said that medical students, draw yourself working as a doctor, they're sitting behind a desk with their diploma on the wall and not a human being in the picture. Oh. <laughs> Only one student out of the whole class Drew himself putting his arm around a patient in a wheelchair and handing her a tissue. Mm. Not one other student had a human being. Interesting. Well, thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Uh, So, bye-bye. So long. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing. 